Politicians open up about mental health. Former Representative Patrick Kennedy is here for it. Senator Fetterman is a beautiful human being who happens to have a brain illness. For Sunday, February 19th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. Michelle Martin. Also on this President's Day weekend, can we celebrate these men and tell the truth? This is what I call the great American contradiction, that a nation conceived in liberty was also born in shackles. Plus, the Alvin Ailey Company is back on tour, making sure Black Joy is on the program. That, to me, is resistance. That four-letter word, love, is one of the most powerful concepts in the universe. That's all coming up, but first, this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is on a visit to Turkey, where he's seeing areas hard hit by this month's magnitude 7.8 earthquake. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports he'll be meeting with senior Turkish officials. Blinken arrived at Injilik Air Base in southern Turkey, where U.S. earthquake aid has been coming into, and will hold meetings with his Turkish counterpart and President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. In addition to discussing the earthquake damage, Blinken is expected to bring up Turkey's ongoing bloc of Sweden and Finland's bid to join NATO. Erdogan is demanding the extradition of people Turkey considers terrorists, among other things. Washington sent a search-and-rescue team to Turkey after the quake, as well as emergency supplies and some $85 million in aid going to both Turkey and Syria. This is Blinken's first visit to Turkey as Secretary of State. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Ukraine is using up ammunition faster than the West can produce it, and allies' own stockpiles are running low because of contributions to Kyiv. Terry Schultz reports a new initiative from Estonia aims to scale up production fast by turning to the European Union. Europe's weapons manufacturers say they have not received big enough orders to scale up the production process for ammunition. A similar problem existed during the coronavirus crisis with vaccine manufacturers until EU countries combined their orders. Estonian Prime Minister Kaja Kallis suggests doing the same now with ammunition. In a market economy, when there's demand, it will increase the capacity to make it faster because Ukraine must be able to defend themselves to win this war. European Commission Chief Ursula von der Leyen says she's in favor of the joint procurement of ammunition and other weapons and is working on making it happen. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. A week after a mass shooting that left three students dead and five others seriously injured, Michigan State University officials say classes and activities will resume tomorrow. Interim Provost Thomas Yajko says they've had meetings with faculty members to emphasize the need to be patient with students and fellow staff as they all work to heal from the traumatic event. In particular, we've asked that there be no heavy lifts. There'd be no attempts at making up for lost time or scrambling and doubling down uh, for the rest of the semester. And I believe that uh, instructors hear that and appreciate that. But he says the two buildings, Berkeley Hall and the Student Union, where the students were shot, will remain closed for this semester. Some of the students, though, do not want the classes to be held fully on the campus. They want classes to be either online only or on a hybrid schedule. Around 23,000 students signed an online petition saying they need more time to process the attack. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
Two Boston police officers suffered non-life-threatening injuries early this morning. A police prisoner transfer van collided with a car and went through a fence at the intersection of Dale Street and Walnut Avenue in Roxbury. A woman in the car was hurt, but the extent of her injuries was not clear. Two people were shot and killed last night in Boston. A woman was pronounced dead when she was gunned down in Dorchester. A man was fatally wounded in Roxbury. A second man was expected to survive. State highway officials want to install additional wrong-way driver detection systems even before the pilot program is fully up and running. The pilot started last fall and was supposed to last a couple of years. But State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says the system has already detected 22 wrong-way drivers since November. The level of success that we've seen so early on leads us to believe that we, this, is, this is the right system for us and we're going to start right away moving on from the pilot situation and start building more of these across the state. When a vehicle enters a highway ramp in the wrong direction, it triggers bright lights and signs warning the driver of their mistake. The system is supposed to be installed at 16 locations in Massachusetts by the spring. Tomorrow is the 20th anniversary of a deadly nightclub fire in West Warwick, Rhode Island. 100 people died. Over 200 were injured when flammable, soundproof insulation ignited by pyrotechnics during a band performance engulfed the station club in minutes. This morning, there was a memorial mass of remembrance at a church in Warwick, Rhode Island. In the forecast, cloudy skies overnight with temperatures falling to around 40 degrees. It will be mostly cloudy tomorrow. There is the slight chance of showers. Temps tomorrow, upper 40s to around 50 degrees. And then on Tuesday, there's a slight chance of morning snow. But it won't stick around. It will change to rain as temperatures climb into the mid-40s. Right now in Boston, it is 45 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Last week, his office disclosed that Senator John Fetterman had checked himself into the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center to receive treatment for clinical depression. Last year, the Pennsylvania Democrat suffered a stroke during his campaign, and he's been dealing with side effects from it ever since. Being transparent about physical health problems is one thing, but mental health struggles used to be the third rail, the big unmentionable for public officials. But in the last few days, other members of Congress, both men and women, have come forward to acknowledge the that they too have lived with and sought treatment for similar challenges from PTSD to depression and anxiety. Which led us to wonder, does this moment signal a shift in how politicians talk about their mental health and by extension, maybe others? We thought we'd ask a former member of Congress, Patrick J. Kennedy, a Democrat who represented Rhode Island in the House, and he's also the son of the late longtime Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy. Patrick Kennedy was an early practitioner of openness about struggles with mental health. Back in the 2000s, he told voters about having been treated for depression and substance abuse, and he's with us now. Congressman Kennedy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Michelle. So when you saw that Senator Fetterman had checked himself in for depression treatment, I was just wondering what your initial thoughts were. No one willingly chooses to have a mental illness, nor do they choose to have addiction. I mean, I 
and my family who have also suffered from addiction, uh, if we had been able to choose a different life where we wouldn't have been shamed because of our struggles, there's no question in my mind, uh, many of my family members, uh, my mom who suffered from really debilitating alcoholism would have chosen early on not to ever drink again. But these are illustrative of the fact that people don't have choice when they're in the middle and in the grip of a brain illness. Hmm. Do you remember what the conversations were like and how you arrived at the decision to share with the public about your struggles with bipolar disorder and substance abuse disorder? Yeah, sure. So um, I have no profile in courage. I didn't do this because I wanted a big conversation to take place, uh, unlike what I think Senator Fetterman is doing by the nature of his announcement. In my case, I was outed as having been in drug treatment by someone who was in drug treatment with me and who sold their story to the National Enquirer that they had been in treatment with me, putting me on the front page of the National Enquirer. I ended up surviving that. Um, this is back in the 91, so that was a big deal to survive uh, accusation of drug use. At the time, my constituency in Rhode Island were more upset that someone ratted on me than they were that I was a drug addict. Do you think that there is still, though, is a, a different standard for politicians, for, for elected officials, than there are for other people in the public eye around this, this issue? Because a lot of people have become more open about mental health issues. I mean, I'm thinking I can think of any number of, you know, actors. I think, in, you know, journalists like uh, the famous, you know, Mike Wallace. But I do wonder if you think that there's still, uh, still a, a different standard for public officials when it comes to this kind of health issue. It was a strange phenomenon. My staff told me, don't talk about it. They already know, Patrick. And yet it was the elephant in the room. So when I would go to a community center, you know, I'd first start by saying, thank you all for the get well cards while I was in rehab. And of course, none of them sent me get well cards, but <laughs> they didn't know that. And so they all thought that they were the odd man out for not having thought about that. And that kind of put them on the defensive. And actually, at the end of the events, it was like a line out the door. And everybody asked me when they spoke to me to go off to the side. They didn't want anyone else to overhear their own stories being told. Interesting. Did anybody ever throw it in your face? So, yeah, I mean, I definitely got tons of negative and my experiences that every family in America knows this issue in the most personal way. Now, the symptoms of these illnesses make those of us who suffer from them very unattractive and very easy to shun because these symptoms are very antisocial, negative, and, and that's part of the reason why stigma is so strong is that we all have family members who we also want to avoid because um, they have one of these illnesses. So the real challenge for us is how do we understand these illnesses and how do we distinguish between the illness and the person? So I am not my addiction. I am a person with addiction. And 
Senator Fetterman is a beautiful human being who happens to have a brain illness that can be treated, by the way. He is a great man. You know, whether you agree with his politics or not, anyone who's willing to serve as he is, especially in this environment, needs to be given all of the benefit of the doubt. You're not in elective office anymore, but you are now, you are still a mental health advocate. It's my understanding that you've created some resources for members or people who work in, in Congress. Do you have some, if you feel comfortable saying this, some advice for Senator Fetterman, like what he should do when he concludes his treatment, his in-hospital treatment? Do you, you have thoughts about that? Well, there were a group of us on Capitol Hill when I was in Congress that used to gather all of whom had this challenge. And there was a certain protective circle because it wasn't as if any of us were outing the other because we were all in it together. So if I were him, I would pick what we call closed mouth friends. And those are best found amongst those who have a similar lived experience. And I will tell you, that reduced the anxiety and isolation that I always had in politics. And it changed the whole nature of my relationship with my constituents, as it did my relationship with my colleagues in Congress. That's former congressman and now mental health advocate Patrick Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your memories and your thoughts with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Michelle. Now to Turkey, which is stopping rescue efforts in all but two provinces after earthquakes caused tens of thousands of deaths in the southern part of that country and Syria. Far away in Turkey's largest city, Istanbul, people are wondering if they too are at risk. And Piers Peter Kenyon reports that earthquake preparedness has become both a safety issue and a political issue. The need for Turkey to be ready for an earthquake has long been a talking point for Recep Tayyip Erdogan as Istanbul mayor, then as Turkey's prime minister, and now as president. In a 2021 speech on the Aegean earthquake that hit Izmir and other areas the year before, Erdogan said his government has been with the people, quote, from the very first minute. Praise God, our country has the fastest, most effective and practical disaster response system in the world. But one common response immediately after this month's earthquake and major aftershocks that brought buildings crashing down was, where's the state? Istanbul architect Korkut Özgenler says his first reaction after seeing the scenes from Karamanmaraş, Gaziantep and other cities was one of overwhelming sadness followed by anger. It's very sad and for me as an architect seeing all those buildings collapsed and people under the rubble, it's, it's especially, it uh, makes me actually furious. And... Um, and the question comes to Istanbul, is Istanbul vulnerable? His own answer to that question is yes. He says things improved with new laws and building codes after the 1999 quake that killed more than 17,000 people, but he says the job is far from finished. At the moment, people are sad, and psychologically, everyone is like even more scared that this could happen uh, very soon in Istanbul as well. Rightly so, because so many buildings are at risk. After this month's quakes in the south, Istanbul's current mayor made a sobering announcement. He said some 90,000 buildings could be at risk if a major earthquake struck the city, and others put the number even higher. 
A cabinet minister says more than 50,000 buildings need to be demolished urgently. Erdogan is defending the government's quake response, but critics say even before this quake, there was lax enforcement of building codes and other failings. Gunal Tol, founding director of the Turkey program at the Middle East Institute, wrote that corruption and mismanagement in Erdogan's government led to, quote, the tragedy that struck my country. Analyst Sinan Olgin, director of Istanbul's Center for Economics and Foreign Policy Studies, says the political impact of the disaster is almost certain to be negative for the government. We don't really have poll numbers to indicate the political impact uh, of this disaster. But nonetheless, uh, ultimately, it's going to be a handicap uh, for the ruling party. Hogan says holding elections before the end of June is a constitutional obligation, but he can't rule out Erdogan trying to delay them anyway. Geologist Korkut Özgenler says if the question is who is to blame, then contractors shouldn't be the only answer. He says it was the tenants, especially commercial tenants on the ground floors of buildings, who increased their space by knocking out load-bearing walls, weakening the structure's integrity. They have blood on their hands, and uh, and that makes me really, really angry when I see this, because you hand over the building, and then it's the tenants who cause major damage to a building. I mean, you don't need an earthquake of 7.7 to see a building to fall over like this if there's no walls in the building or no core. Analyst Sinan Ogin agrees building owners or tenants may be partly to blame, but ultimately, he says, it's up to the government to enforce the building codes on the books. With elections for the moment shrouded in uncertainty, people here watch anxiously for signs that the government is committed to preparing the country for the next major earthquake. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Coming up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilsdon at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith. Starts February 25th, amrep.org. Whatever your Monday includes, start with WBUR tomorrow. As high-profile Republicans visit Iowa, the 2024 campaign season is well underway, with 2024 looking a little different for the Hawkeye State than it has in the past. Tomorrow morning on the radio and the WBUR app. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Prepare for a successful career with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. The program exceeds state licensure requirements, and the GRE is not required. Now accepting applications for fall, bgsp.edu. Classes and activities resume at Michigan State University tomorrow, one week after a gunman stormed campus and opened fire, killing three students and wounding five others. The school's interim president says the university will pay for the funerals of those killed and hospital bills of the wounded. Secretary of State Antony Blinken arrived in Turkey today, where he viewed the devastation caused by last week's earthquake and promised the U.S. will provide more aid to help Turkey cope with the disaster. And actor Richard Belzer has died. He was best known for playing Detective John Munch in Law & Order SVU and on Homicide, Life on the Street. He was also a stand-up comic. The AP says he died at home in southern France at the age of 78. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, where drivers can compare direct rates using Progressive's rate comparison tool. Customers can see options and rates side by side. More at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. On this President's Day weekend, we want to talk about how and why we remember those men who've sat in this country's highest office, or how we revisit our memories, as the case may be. We're in an era of reevaluating presidents, but when we talk about some of their less laudatory attributes, for example, the fact that 10 of the first 12 U.S. presidents owned and enslaved people, the conversation can get heated, like two years ago when the San Francisco Board of Education decided to take names like Washington, Jefferson, and Lincoln off of its schools and then reversed itself, or last month when House Republicans reintroduced the Mount Rushmore Protection Act to try to make sure nobody changes the monument, or the many fights being pushed by conservative activists over how slavery can be taught. So as we get ready to celebrate another holiday that lionizes our commanders-in-chief, we were wondering if there is a better way to get at the truth of presidents who've been the stuff of myth, but who were also human beings and the products of their times. We thought we'd call Kenneth C. Davis for this because he is a popular history writer known for his Don't Know Much series, where he tries to make history accessible to everybody. His works include the bestseller Don't Know Much About History and also In the Shadow of Liberty, The Hidden History of Slavery, Four Presidents and Five Black Lives. And he's here with us now. Kenneth C. Davis, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us once again. It is always a pleasure to be with you, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So let me just start by asking you how you grew up thinking about these figures. And as you've written more about them, have your own views changed? Absolutely. And when I was in school as a kid, and I'm talking about the 1960s and even early 1970s, Washington and most of the other presidents like Jefferson and Andrew Jackson were still on their pedestals. It wasn't until the 1970s when a new generation of scholarship started to come along that we began to talk about the fact that these marbleized statues as we knew them, the faces on our money, were slaveholders. And that was something that certainly wasn't in my school books. And when I set out to write Don't Know Much About History, which came out more than 30 years ago, I was really profoundly interested in answering this question. How do these men who defend this idea, all men are created equal and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, how do those men say those words, and then go home to plantations, uh, businesses, homes, completely dependent upon enslaved labor. This is what I call the great American contradiction, that a nation conceived in liberty was also born in shackles. And we cannot escape that fact. Do you recall when you first started grappling with these facts, did you find it disturbing? And how did you think about it? I don't think it was disturbing to me so much as the fact that you know, growing up when I did, the notion that this story of the Washington who cut down the cherry tree and couldn't tell a lie was a complete fabrication wasn't so much a shock to me. 
what was more surprising to me as I became more interested in writing about this as a historian was that so many people still did believe it and it was really woven into this mythic foundation legend of American history. And my interest has always been not to um, uh, just tear down statues or tear down myths and legends, but to be accurate and be human. As I mentioned earlier, your sort of seminal work, Don't Know Much About History, has been a huge bestseller. It still remains in print. I mean, millions of copies have been sold, okay? You've subsequently written other books that have dug more deeply into the lives of the enslaved. I'm thinking as specifically of In the Shadow of Liberty, The Hidden History of Slavery, Four Presidents, and Five Black Lives. I am interested in hearing a little bit about those five lives. So tell me a little bit about that. But I am also curious to know whether those works have been as well received. Well, I'm happy to say yes in in some respects. Um, In the Shadow of Liberty was written, uh, it came out uh, about six years ago now. It was the result of my concern and questioning about this fundamental contradiction in American history. I had always thought to investigate it in terms of those men themselves, what they said, what they wrote, what they did. And at a different point, largely in my conversations with young people around the country, talking about the Civil War and talking about presidents and talking about slavery, I thought, I really need to flip the narrative here and look at this from the perspective of the enslaved themselves. Why do you think it is that some people are so resistant to even acknowledging this aspect of these people's lives? Or is it that you think that they're afraid that there will be no heroes? I wish it was that simple. I I don't think that it is. I, I think, first of all, we have to say when people are talking about children feeling ashamed at learning this, we have to be realistic and say which children would feel such shame. And clearly their fear is that white children will feel ashamed. It's certainly part of a wishfulness perhaps to, you know, have a past that is the way we had the past in the 1950s. And we know that that past is not only inaccurate, but it was racist. And it reflected a a white supremacist nationalistic view that many people contend we cannot teach anymore. But there are those who want to hold fast to a comfortable narrative that is just not true. What what do you say to people who are concerned, or at least they say that they're concerned, that introducing these stories, particularly at a young age, leads people not to love their country as they should. I guess the argument is that we need national heroes so that we can feel proud of our country and that this diminishes our our view of them. What, what do you say to that? I say that it's really, really important and valuable to understand those documents that these men wrote because they still really ring true. These notions that Jefferson wrote that all men are created equal, that we have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that governments can only govern with the consent of the governed. These are really fundamentally important ideas that have stood the test of time, in spite of the fact that Jefferson was perhaps the greatest example of this contradiction. And he knew that. A lot of people will say, well, they were men of their time, and uh, slavery was what they grew up with and that was their world. 
That's true, but they also, Washington, certainly Jefferson and Madison in particular, those three, they acknowledged that slavery was a contradiction to the ideals that they were fighting for. George Washington writes a letter in 1787 to uh, one of his friends saying, no one wishes more than I for the abolition of it. And he just wants somebody to come up with a plan. Unfortunately, when he's at the peak of his power and popularity, he did really nothing to bring about the end of, of slavery. Before we let you go, do you still admire them knowing what you know now? I do. And I guess, you know, with the wisdom of, of a few years, my admiration is tempered by reality. The truth shall set you free. And understanding what they did and the contradictions that they lived with does not negate the extraordinary accomplishments. Kenneth C. Davis is an historian. He's the author of many best-selling books. His latest work is titled Great Short Books, A Year of Reading Briefly. Kenneth C. Davis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. And um, tell everybody out there that history is not boring. It was the announcement heard round the internet. Shopify was doing away with meetings. The e-commerce platform called it useful subtraction, freeing up time to allow people to get stuff done. The news got people talking and wondering, how do you actually do that? NPR's Andrea Shu and Stacey Vanek-Smith take it from here. The meeting situation in a lot of jobs has gotten kind of out of control since COVID. In one study, Microsoft found the amount of time workers spend in meetings has more than tripled. That's a lot of meetings. Yes. But I can see it. Here at NPR, there are a lot of things I could be going to. There's the weekly all staff. There are two weekly pitch meetings. A training session, actually two of those. There's the audience insights meeting. And then there are the extracurricular fun meetings, like trivia night. Of course, I do love trivia. Still, it's easy to see how a lot of us hit peak meeting misery over the past few years. The idea of deleting all those meetings seems so refreshing. And radical. We have been wondering, how are things going at Shopify a month in? Yes. So we got on a Zoom with Shopify's chief operating officer, Kaz Najatian. He's the one who wrote the memo about purging meetings. Turns out he is as hardcore as he sounds. All meetings are bad meetings. Andrea, he is a true believer. We deleted 322 thousand hours of meetings. That is in a company of about 10,000 employees. And they actually wrote code to do this. There is a bot that went into everyone's calendars and purged all recurring meetings with three or more people. Now, after two weeks, people were allowed to add things back if they really needed to. But not on Wednesdays. They have no meetings Wednesdays. And if you violate that... You get a uh, Slack bot telling you, you booked a meeting at a time you're not allowed to book a meeting. Are you sure you want to do this? Najatian told us most Shopify employees are following the rules and they're so much happier. I had an engineer tell me for the first time in a very long time they got to write code all day. Apparently, this is what engineers want, just a code in peace. <laughs> uh, but mostly he says this moment for Shopify was this big reset. Now people feel empowered to say no to meeting invitations, even when those invitations come from really senior people. People. people have been saying no to meetings from me, and I'm a CEO at a company, and that's great. Okay, but to be fair, Stacey, in putting this story together, you and I did have a bunch of <laughs> meetings. Yes. And I thought they were pretty useful. Yeah, I mean, we 
tossed ideas back and forth. We roped in our editors. We planned out what we would report. It was way better than just slacking endlessly. But when we asked Kaz Najatian about this, about collaboration, well, here's what he said. I think collaboration is a wonderful thing, but the largest collaborative things in the world happen without meetings. Every open source project, open source software project in the world is created with no meetings. People just collaborate and code. And at that point in the conversation, I was kind of lost. I mean, I don't know how to write code. Do you, Stacey? I do not. Maybe we're doomed to go to meetings, Andrea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've all been in meetings that have gone on way too long, where the conversation has gone off the rails. I get that. But how much we need or don't need meetings, maybe that's not so universal. Yes. I mean, at Shopify, for instance, everyone is remote. Kaz Najatian was in the Bahamas when we talked to him. Also, you know, their main product is this digital platform. Maybe they're fine with very few meetings. And I get why companies want fewer meetings. For one thing, meetings are expensive. Steven Rogelberg at UNC Charlotte has studied this. He says companies waste tens of millions of dollars forcing people to attend unnecessary meetings. I hate meetings. I hate meetings. But... But, he says, good meetings are critical to a company's success. He says that's how people can be heard. And virtual meetings, he thinks, are actually helping to make meetings better. Inherently, virtual meetings are set up to be much more democratic, right? There's no head of table effects. Everyone is on equal standing around the virtual table. He loves that people have the option to just drop something into the chat box if they don't want to speak up. What's more, he says studies show companies that run excellent meetings are more profitable because their employees are more engaged. They do a better job. On the flip side, disengaged workers end up quiet quitting or actually quitting. We've seen a lot of that lately. We have. And you know, Andrea, even if good meetings have value, no one's going to like really say they love meetings. That is not socially acceptable, right? But the utterances about how much you hate meetings is completely on brand and universal. Now, Rogelberg does see a silver lining here. All of our collective rage about meetings since the pandemic, well, companies are finally paying attention. I mean, I am talking to organizations all the time, and I am just finding the appetite for solutions the highest it's ever been. In fact, Andrea, just days after Shopify's announcement, we got a memo. Yeah, here at NPR, the hunt for unnecessary meetings is on. Just as long as they don't cut trivia night. <laughs> Andrea Shu, Stacey Vanek Smith, NPR News. You're listening to NPR News. We've been hearing for a couple of weeks about the train derailment and chemical fire in East Palestine, Ohio. A number of residents were forced to evacuate after state officials let the company conduct a controlled burn, meaning they deliberately burned off chemicals to try to prevent an even more damaging explosion. But as frightening as the whole situation has been for those residents, it turns out it's fairly common, or at least it's not uncommon. More than a thousand trains derail every year. Rebecca Burns is a reporter for the media startup The Lever that was founded by former Bernie speechwriter David Sirota, and she co-authored an op-ed in the New York Times this week where they argued it doesn't have to be this way. And Rebecca Burns is with us now. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the derailment in East Palestine. The company that owns the train intentionally burned off some of the substances the train was carrying. 
and that includes vinyl chloride. Chronic exposure has been associated with cancer, according to the EPA. Now, I know your main focus is why does this keep happening? But based on what you've learned so far, was burning off the substances the right thing to do? Right. So there are certainly um, some considerable concerns about the long-term health effects of exposure to vinyl chloride. Um, It has a long latency period um, before people who are exposed to it may start to have respiratory issues. It's linked to several serious kinds of cancer. Uh, What we do know is in a previous accident in 2012, Uh, In New Jersey, when thousands of tons of vinyl chloride were spilled, um, there are reports of residents in that area um, suffering long-term health effects. So you pointed out in your piece that the number of train derailments has actually gone down since the 1970s, but, but there are still, you know, hundreds each year. And you also say that the cost has gone up. What do you mean by that? I mean, is it that the number of chemical leaks has gone up since the 1970s? Right. Well, so the number of uh, total derailments has gone down since the 70s, but the number of accidents per mile has actually increased. um, And the damage from derailments, um, specifically carrying hazardous chemicals, has also been increasing over the last seven years. So one of the issues here is we have these longer and heavier trains um, being staffed by smaller and smaller crews. Um, And so the accidents, when they do occur, can be quite serious. So what would make a difference? I mean, one of the things you point out in your piece is that the technology, say the brake technology, is actually fairly ancient. What are some of the things that would bring that number down? So most of the nation's freight trains are running using braking technology that was developed during the Civil War era, um, compressed air brakes that stop train cars one by one, sort of like a giant slinky. Uh, So a rule um, would have required upgrades to electronically controlled braking systems that have faster stop times. Um, I want to say in addition to, uh, you know, the technological upgrades, uh, really sort of the other side of the same coin here is is the labor issues that railroads have um, resisted making investments in maintenance and and needed technological upgrades. They've also really resisted uh, investing in a workforce that's fully staffed, that has sick days, um, and, uh, you know, has what it needs to maintain and operate trains safely. Rebecca Burns is a reporter for the media startup The Lever. Rebecca, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. Coming up next at 6 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. Cloudy skies overnight with temperatures uh, down in the low 40s, mostly cloudy tomorrow. There is the slight chance of showers tomorrow, mid to upper 40s, maybe touching 50 degrees. And then Tuesday, there's a slight chance of morning snow, and then it changes to rain with temperatures in the mid 40s. Right now in Boston, it is 45 degrees. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet. 
announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukraine is using up ammunition faster than the West can produce it, and allies' own stockpiles are running low because of contributions to Kyiv. A new initiative from Estonia, though, aims to speed up production by turning to the European Union. The U.S. and South Korean militaries held joint exercises today. This is a day after North Korea's first intercontinental ballistic missile launch since November. And at the weekend box office, Disney's Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, took the top spot, opening with an estimated $104 million in ticket sales. The superhero adventure is the first $100 million domestic debut of this year. So far, it's made $225 million globally. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from Indeed, a hiring platform dedicated to helping businesses find the right people. Businesses can attract, screen, and interview candidates, all from the employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. There's one narrative about the rise of Silicon Valley in Palo Alto, California, that it's a place where the entrepreneurial spirit roams free, nurtured by fine schools and open minds, whose progeny go on to create things that make the world better for everyone. And then there's Malcolm Harris's version. In his buzzy, sprawling new book, it is a microcosm of and a metaphor for a capitalist system that advantages the few at the expense of the many, that extracts as much as it can, as fast as it can, leaving exhausted soil, bodies, and souls in its wake. His book is called Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. And when I spoke with Harris, he told me that the idea for the book came from his thoughts about his childhood in Palo Alto. So I'm born in 1988. The Soviet Union project ends in 1991. And so my existence is almost coextensive with this unipolar capitalism. I've really grown up near it and in it. And in Palo Alto, I moved there at age eight, uh, which was in the mid 90s. I really got to see this sort of dot com rise, the rise of the internet. And I think we're all living in that world and the consequences in that world more and more every day. So one of the things that's so interesting about the book, you spend time on the so-called great men, people like Leland Stanford, the founder of Stanford University. These are the famous people who so often dominate historical narratives. But you weave their stories into a view of the larger forces that you call the great man under global capitalism. So what is the role of the great man under global capitalism, like somebody like Leland Stanford? And of course, at, at some point, I need you to tell us who he was and why does he matter so much? There's a lot of debate about where and when capitalism starts and how, but there's not a lot of debate about where and how it becomes a world system. And that's at the second half of the 19th century with the incorporation of California, Australia, China, and Japan, and this link that closes this chain around the world to establish for the first time 
a true global system of production. And Leland Stanford is that guy. He's the front man for the construction of the transcontinental railroad. He really is our first Silicon Valley tech baron. But this was a time of really great class conflict. And so in the 1870s, when the workers are mad at him, showing up outside his house, threatening to drag him from his mansion on Knob Hill, which is a hill in San Francisco, where all the richest guys lived at the time, he takes his family and he moves to the suburbs, except the suburbs don't exist yet. So he has to create the suburb in order to move his family away from this class conflict. And that's how Palo Alto was born. I mean, you do pin a lot of focus on the cruelty that underlies some of these central figures and the companies that they made. You know, look, I'm certainly not going to defend the cruelty that underlies many great fortunes throughout history. Many of the great inventions of our time, I mean, you think about like some of the great libraries, some of the great collections, some of the great art. Most people weren't getting the benefit of that. Is, is this era really so different? Well, I think it is different because we're talking about a very limited amount of time, right, between the end of the 19th century and now. Even in terms of American history, this is a relatively short period of time. In that period of time, those technologies and forces that we've invoked since then, you know, that Palo Alto represents to the world, have been incredibly destructive. So when we're talking about nuclear missiles for the first time, right, we're talking about the power to destroy the Earth. And that was a power wielded consciously out of Palo Alto on purpose with this idea that equality was at stake, right? That Palo Alto's place as an unequal perch on top of the world was at stake and that these people had to come up with some way, some tool to secure that position for the 20th century. And now that we're in the 21st century, we can look back and say, they succeeded, they did that. So that's not just moving money around, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's serious, that's war, right? That's a lot of bombs you have to produce, a lot of chips to go in those bombs that you have to produce. The book has gotten, I think, a lot of buzz. On the other hand, the criticism that I've seen so far is that you talk about capitalism's many ills, but you are indifferent to the alternatives. Like how many people have been slaughtered by communist regimes throughout history, right? And I mean... I don't know if that's a fair criticism in the sense that most historians don't necessarily write a history book and then end it with a manifesto about what should happen next. I mean, they're reviewing what has already happened. But I don't know. What do you make of that argument? Yes, I'm a Marxist. I understand history as the history of class conflict. But that doesn't mean that my project is the weighing of hearts, right? I'm not saying this guy's a capitalist, so he's bad. This guy's a communist, so he's good. That's not the project of the book. It's to try to understand this history. And the best way I can understand that history is as a history of class conflict. And that's the argument I put forward. Now, when someone writes a history of the Soviet Union and they critique Stalin, do they then have to list, you know, how many people died in the Vietnam War hmm. that were killed by American bombs? Of course not. Mm -hmm. And so this is a, a pretty well-worn practice called red baiting. And it's like bear baiting, right? Is that you throw out these poorly made arguments with the idea that someone like me is going to have to spend all of their time responding to, well, what about Venezuela? Well, <laughs> what about the Soviet Union? And doesn't actually get to put my argument out there in terms of the interpretation of the history. And that's a way to marginalize these sort of critical voices about capitalism. It's fascinating. Do you have a hope for how people will 
use this book? I mean, I do take your point that it arrives at a moment where there's so much going on in the tech industry right now, just these kind of waves of layoffs, and people are looking about whether the costs and the benefits equate. I'm just, I'm curious about how you hope people will use this work. For me, the, the purpose of the book isn't to say, you know, the emperor has no clothes, because we figure that out about Silicon Valley every 20 years, every 15 years, whatever. The, the same cycle repeats and we say, hey, look, these guys aren't geniuses after all. And so what I'm trying to get at in terms of how we can put this to use and put an understanding about this history to use is that if you point out that the emperor is naked, it doesn't necessarily make him not the emperor anymore. If people have a deeper memory for these cycles, hopefully they can look underneath the sort of bubble phenomenon to the mechanism that's causing those bubbles in the first place. That's Malcolm Harris. His new book, Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism and the World, is out now. Malcolm Harris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And finally today, few people have had a more improbable career in the arts than Alvin Ailey, a black boy born into deep poverty in the segregated South at the height of the Great Depression. And yet somehow he went on to become one of the critical figures in American dance, founding a company dedicated to exploring and celebrating African-American culture in all its many colors through dance. Now the company he founded, the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater, is celebrating its 65th year and is back on tour under the leadership of only its third artistic director, Robert Battle. And at a time when issues of racial injustice and inequality are very much in the news, the company is exploring what some might consider an unlikely theme, love and joy. And Robert Battle is with us now to tell us more from Atlanta, where the company's on tour. Robert Battle, thanks so much for joining us once again. Of course. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, I'm imagining looking forward to the 65th uh, anniversary tour. Did you have something special in mind, both as a way to celebrate, you know, surviving the pandemic when a lot of other companies didn't, and also just celebrating this moment? Was there something in particular in your mind as you were putting this tour together? Well, I mean, you used a great word that I think we are thinking about is surviving, right? And just to that end, I brought back a work that Alvin Ailey created in 1986 as a response to Nelson Mandela being thrown in jail unjustly. And Alvin Ailey wanted to respond to it. And so he created a work called Survivors. I just thought it had such resonance with where we are as an organization, not only surviving, but thriving. Also thinking about the pandemic and the racial divide and all of the things that we've been grappling with it was important for me to express the fact that Alvin Ailey was a trailblazer in that sense, that he was the living embodiment of the notion that Black lives matter and Black excellence and creativity. There's a piece in particular I wanted to highlight called Are You In Your Feelings by <laughs> choreographer Kyle Abraham. He's a MacArthur a Genius Award winner. It is this really joyous performance set against a mixtape of R&B and hip hop and soul. Let me just play a little bit of that so people can get a little bit of the flavor. Tell us a little bit about, for those who 
haven't yet had a chance to see this, what are some of the things that you will see in this work? What I love about it is it crosses generations. When he would talk to me about his ideas on the phone, he said, I want to do something for the company. I want to do something very black. <laughs> I remember him saying that very, you know, no filter. He just said, very black. And I said, well, that'll do. And then he said, I really want to do like a mixtape. And, and the songs told the story, and that's what he did. I know you like to drink to the sun up, grind till you come up. You have Drake, you have Erica Badu, uh, you have Summer Walker. You don't know what love is if you're too good to call them a million times. Gosh, then you have Shirley Brown and that great song, Woman to Woman. Woman to Woman, if you've ever been in love. It just runs the gamut. It's a way of, because we often have different generations of audience members at the same performance. And so everybody has something they can connect to. But you see the thing, the piece itself has so many lovely combinations. Of course, there's the, like the classic, you know, ensemble piece. There's the men doing their thing. There mm -hmm. are the classic kind of male-female pairings, but there are also kind of two men dancing together at some yes. point. They're expressing this whole kind of wide range of relationships, love, romantic love. And the reason I raise that is that this piece is coming out, um, there's been so much sadness in the last mm -hmm. couple of years. You know, so much about, you know, police violence, about, you know, gun violence, street violence. And I just wanted to ask you, like, why you thought it was so important to highlight something so joyous. Why did you think that was so important? Because you give the piece a lot of time on the program. Yes, because we have always survived with not just activism, but humor, you know, with song, with dance. When you see people dancing together in spite of the weather. That to me is resistance. That four-letter word, love, is one of the most powerful concepts in the universe. And that's what he reminds us of in this work. And you have a piece that you directed, a piece for two dancers called Unfold. The performance I saw was performed by an opera singer and uh, singing an aria through, which was also, you know, delightful in itself. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Brandy Sutton, who has such a beautiful voice. Uh, for me, this duet, Unfold, it was inspired actually by uh, the singing of Lantine Price. I'd never heard a Black woman sing opera. And there was a commercial for the United Negro College Fund. Leontine Price sang through the commercial in her operatic voice, and I remember thinking that was something I'd never heard. I was spellbound, and I wanted to honor her voice. And so Unfold, to me, is about being, in a way, in love and watching it, you know, unfold like a flower. You think that people have a hunger for, to think about love? I do. I think people are tired. We need a recharge. We need to feed the soul. We re need to remember softness. And so I think in some ways, yes, it is about romance, but it's also about optimism. It's also about looking forward. 
So before we let you go, um, most performances of the Ailey Company, or at least many, end with Revelations. This is a signature work of Alvin Ailey's. It's so much identified with the company that I think if you saw a picture of one of the opening set pieces that you would immediately know what it was. Yes. And, and, and people see it and the audiences just go wild no matter how many times they mm-hmm. have seen it. And in fact, I always hear people whispering, never gets old. It never gets <laughs> old. For people who haven't seen it, it is a series of pieces for ensemble, pas de individual solos, but all set to traditional hymns that are part of the African-American experience. And, you know, like Rock of My Soul, Wade in the Water, and I Want to Be Ready. I'm just wondering why you think it continues to have such power. I think that there are moments when the divine, you know, sort of enters the being of someone in such a way in that creative moment that they channel something that just becomes both personal and at once also universal. You know, when you hear that humming, immediately there's a sense of one's primordial past. Then the curtain rises and it's that perfect pyramid of dancers with their weight on the ground, but with their heads looking toward the sky. It just has this way of defying place and time and circumstance and bringing people together and breaking down that fourth wall. By the end of that word, there is no real tangible separation other than the footlights between the dancers, the dance, and the audience. That is Robert Battle, Artistic Director at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. It's based in New York City, but the company is on tour now, which is where we reached Robert Battle in Atlanta. Robert Battle, thank you so much for being with us once again. Thank you for having me.